when you look at pitchers and mechanics and mindset and everything like that, you know, I think confidence is something that's a choice for players. You can either choose to come to the field confident or not. With that being said, it's much easier to be confident when you're having success on the field than it is when you're really, really struggling. Welcome into another episode of Baseball America's From Phenom to the Farm. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Hope everyone had a happy holiday season and hope everyone checked out our last episode with the great Dontra Willis. Uh, today, we are talking to Jacob Turner, the ninth overall pick in the 2009 draft by the Tigers. Jacob was a, a firm UNC commit viewed as a very tough sign at a high school, and his signing was a mark of a different era. While he received the significant signing bonus that most first-round picks get, Jacob also got a big league contract, placing him right away on the 40-man roster, starting his option clock, something that the current draft rules prohibit. We talk about that decision and not really understanding what that decision meant for him as an 18-year-old and the implications that a big league deal had on his career for better or worse as he climbed up the ladder. We also talk about that quick ascent to the big leagues Jacob got there just after his 20th birthday and how development has changed when it comes to pitching just in the decades since he was drafted. Uh, when Jacob came in, it was a lot of pitching off the fastball. Uh, now things are, are much different. We talk about how he tried to adjust as he got later into his career. Uh, we talk about his final stop in Korea and what we need to bring to the States from Korean baseball. Episodes of From Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoy this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go check out past interviews. And if you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA Podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. Top 10 lists are rolling out, and we're ramping up for college baseball season. That is just around the corner. Teddy and Joe handling that on the BA College Pod. It is always a good time to subscribe to Baseball America. With that, let's talk to Jacob Turner. All right, joining in for today's episode of From Phenom to the Farm, he was a first-round pick of the Tigers in the 2009 draft, former big league right-hander Jacob Turner. Jacob, thanks so much for joining From Phenom to the Farm. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Of course, of course. Um, let's jump right into it. Uh, you were a guy who you you were scouted from a pretty young age, did some time with with Team USA as, a, you know, as an amateur. When did you first realize that baseball was something you could take to the next level, whether that be Division One or professionally? Yeah, I would say probably my junior year of high school, I went to a Perfect Game showcase uh, back when Perfect Game wasn't quite what they are today and threw indoors off a dirt mound with cleats I bought that day. And I think I threw like 91 or 92. And I remember Jerry Ford having a conversation with my dad about like doing the Perfect Game National and some of the All-American events. And then, you know, kind of continuous throughout that summer, just realized like, hey, I'm doing pretty well at this, you know, like my body's catching up to my talent level and it kind of went from there. What was the, the first day that college coaches could contact you like? It was pretty crazy. I remember having like a lot of phone calls. I remember growing up, I was a huge, I guess, Mizzou fan, so to speak. Like I thought if I could play baseball at Mizzou, that would be like the pinnacle of like everything I could do with professional sports or college sports, I guess. I used to go to Mizzou baseball camps and then had a lot of college coaches contact me that first day and was getting letters from schools and handwritten notes. And obviously really exciting as a high school kid to get that much interest. So what gravitated you, I guess, away from Mizzou and towards Chapel Hill? Yeah, I think just going through the process. I had some people that helped kind of advise throughout that process. And, you know, North Carolina at the time was really, really good. And they had had a couple of really good recruiting classes that some guys had went there, some guys had signed. I'd had a lot of success recently with pitchers. And, you know, as a high school kid, there's things that you like that maybe aren't of the most importance. They had just built a new stadium that was really cool. They had, you know, a lot of on-campus things that were unique to Chapel Hill. The college environment was cool. So, you know, a lot of things that as an 18-year-old kid made you want to go there. So I, I pulled this from a 2009 article from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch that came out uh, spring of your senior year. It's a quote from your dad. It says, he's extremely diligent. It's kind of fun to sit back and watch what he does, said Turner's father, Mark. He's up at 6 or 6.30 on Saturday out with a personal trainer. When the family's out for pizza, he's eating salmon. It'll be 10 p.m. and I'll hear things banging in the basement. And it's a 20-pound medicine ball. 
So at that point, you're training to be a first-round pick. You're, you know, you're UNC signee. You're training to be a first-round pick. You know, there's clearly sacrifice that paid off. You were, you know, you were a first-round pick. Did you ever have moments of thinking, man, this kind of sucks? Not really. I had a lot of, you know, I had a lot of God-given ability that, you know, my parents always instilled in me and my brothers that if you really wanted to do anything in life, nothing's handed to you. I remember constantly we used to have a batting cage in our backyard. My dad would always go back there and put balls in the pitching machine. And even when we didn't want to go back there, he'd be like, oh, let's go out there and hit for a little bit. And he would always have this comment he would make that you're going to have such a short window to do whatever you want to do in life, whether it's sports or anything else, and that you should just try to take advantage of it as much as you can. And then whenever you're done, you're going to feel good about wherever you got to with it. And that that always resonated with me and, and my brothers. And I think that's how I looked at, you know, baseball and baseball has led to a lot of things in my life that have been extremely positive. So in high school, you worked with former big league pitcher, uh, Todd Worrell, and then also, also Mike Matheny. What are things that working with a big leaguer that you can get like other than, you know, just mechanical things, what are, what is something that someone who has been there and, and been at the highest level of baseball, what can they what can they give you that that perhaps, you know, lots of people who didn't play baseball are doing great work with mechanics and all that stuff? What can you get from a big leaguer that you might not be able to get from someone else? Yeah, great question. I would say two things and one from each one of those guys. So for Todd, really what I got from him was he just has a level of confidence and aura about him that most people don't have. And I think when I look at guys that have had success at the highest level, whether it's sports or business, or anything, there's just a level of confidence that they bring to the table that the average person, you don't feel that same level of confidence when they walk in the room. And for Mike, a lot of the conversations that we had were just conversations around the minor leagues. You know, when I was going through my senior year and it was getting closer to the realization that like I could actually sign and possibly go on a professional contract after, after that year, having conversations with him and him really just explaining to me, like, it's not all glitz and glamour. You know, you might sign a big contract where you're going to go to a place that maybe you have never heard of before and, and stay in environments that aren't so great. You're going, you're in, in high school, especially as you get into, you know, your your junior, senior year, you're going to these high school American games, the Under Armour games, stuff like that. That, the 2009 draft class, the, the obvious top right-hander in the class was going to be Steven Strasburg, but that is a very prep arm heavy class. There's you, there's Zach Wheeler, Matt Six, Shelby Miller, Matt Perk, just a, just a lot of prep arms that went in that, in that top 20 internally. Was there any competition or awareness around you of, you know, any, any want to be the top guy in that class? Is it, is it hard to stay narrow focused on just you? Or are you thinking about all these other guys kind of, you're all, competing in the same bonus pool i'd say yes and no i mean when you're at those showcases you get to know those guys and i mean all those guys you mentioned right there are are really good guys and a lot of them have had really great careers and when i think about you leave those all-american games you go back and you play your high school season at least for me i wasn't thinking about that i think my parents were big believers in school so it was really instilled in me that like you're going to school no matter what happens And I think, frankly, like that really allowed me to enjoy my senior year of high school. There was scouts there all the time, but in my head, it had been so ingrained in me that I was going to school that there wasn't a ton of pressure on me to go out and perform. I was just going out, having fun, using my God-given ability. And one thing led to another, and I ended up signing a contract. But I wouldn't say for me when I was going through that, I was looking at it so much from like competing against another high school guy or not. What goes into that process then of being a firm, I'm going to school, I'm going to UNC to signing, signing that contract. Uh, and you know, your, your agent is Scott Boris. What is, what does pre-draft prep look like? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with two things. One is what is your family dynamic situation? So for my, my family, I come from a really well-educated family that is strong believers in school. So like I mentioned, you know, I think they, they had instilled that in me. And then I think the other part of that is, you know, who you have advising you outside of your family dynamic situation. And for me, whether that was an advisor that ultimately became an agent or other people in my life that have been through that same process on the professional side, you know, it just gave me a sense of I was okay going to North Carolina, whether I was a first round pick or a 10th round pick. It didn't, you know, the money 
the money aspect also comes into play. But for me, it put me in a really advantageous position when I did get to the draft. What about your game and where you were at that point made you feel like I am ready to be a minor league baseball player? Because there's there's obviously the money thing of, you know, I am ready to have four million dollars. I think I think we'd all, you know, feel like we could do that. Where about where were you as a pitcher and saying, I feel good about my next games being in West Michigan versus in the ACC? Yeah, I don't know if I really have like a good answer for that because I think as an 18 year old, you don't really, no matter how much somebody can kind of prepare you for it, you don't really understand what you're stepping into. I think for me, it was just a combination of, it was a life-changing amount of money with an organization that had really good people that we felt confident in. And I felt like they could do a good job developing me. So, you know, kind of all the stars aligned from that point. And a lot of that is just relying on whoever you have for your you know, advisory team around you as you're going through that process. And you had this advisor team and you're a finance guy now. Did you did you get to use that initial, that first paycheck for anything fun or was it all, you know, kind of tucked away? I didn't really buy anything. I didn't buy a car. I didn't buy, like I actually had guys give me a hard time. Like I had the same car I had in high school, which is a nice car. Like I didn't need a new car. I bought a computer. It was like 1500 bucks. That was like what I bought. Uh, my mom, you know, has an accounting degree. And I remember her sitting me down with like an Excel spreadsheet and telling me like, Hey, this is like how much money you can spend, yada, yada. So I, it put me in a really good position looking back on it. It helped me take a lot of good small baby steps on that financial journey. So that way I didn't, you know, waste what was a, a great opportunity. Knowing what life is like in the minor leagues, did you at least get yourself a good mattress? Yeah. Well, fortunately, with the Tigers, we stayed in, with host families in West Michigan. And the host family that I stayed with were great people. They had a great setup for us. And I, I couldn't be more thankful for that being like my initial initial setup. And, you know, I had a great teammates throughout the minor league. So whenever I moved from stop to stop, whether it was me getting a place or somebody else having a place and moving in with them, it always seemed to work out. And, you know, I look back on those times as like really fond memories even though some of the living situations probably weren't ideal. Well, we're going to, we're going to get into that. I always got to hear about the living situation. So, um, another thing that comes with, with your, your signing bonus, your, your, you sign a big league deal. Um, something that was still allowed at that, at that point, as far as draft rules at, at 18, like what, what kind of idea did you have about how significant that was for your, for your timeline jumps, you know, starting up your, your options, starting on the 40 man. No idea. You know, I mean, I, my agent told me that, like, it was a big deal. But, you know, as 18, you're like, he's explaining what the 40-man roster is. And I'm like, I, you know, the biggest benefit of the 40-man roster for me at the time was the health insurance. And it was just for me. So it didn't really affect me. I mean, all the doctors that you see are with the team. So I'm like, I don't understand why this is so important. And as far as the options go and things of that nature, I didn't, I'm sure they explained it to me, but I didn't look too deep into it so any any guy who signs especially at a high school you know you got to think hey i want to be in the big leagues in such and such year or something like that you had that clock on you already you you needed to be in the big leagues by you know by your 22nd birthday i think or you know you'd be you know put on waivers did was that something that you was that something that you were aware with or was explained to you or at least you had in mind as you were going through the minors i don't really remember ever thinking that to be honest with you I, uh, whether it's you just being naive as an 18 year old, I'm sure somebody explained it to me at some point, but I don't ever remember thinking like, Oh, there's like some clock on me that like, I have to be in the big leagues. So the jump to pro ball competition, you go to, you go to West Michigan, you go to Lakeland that same year, you advance two levels. What was the, I guess, what's the difference in seeing those two levels the same time coming out and you, you handled your, you acquitted yourself pretty well at both levels. Yeah, I don't know. Everybody talks about like there being a big jump between one level to the next level to the next level. I never felt like there was a huge jump between minor league levels. I felt like each level, you know, guys were just more mature, even off the field. Guys were more mature on the field in terms of like at bats and things of that nature. But I never felt like there was this huge jump. It was more the locker room dynamic that changed because guys were older, guys had more experience. You know, I mean, you can learn more from people that had been through the situation years and years. And especially the guys that 
had spent maybe five or six years and they were in high A, you can learn a lot from those guys because they had been there and done that. And so I think that was the biggest part for me. What are some of those things when you, you pick a guy's brain in the high A, you know, in the high A locker room, what are the, some of those things that you're looking for? I think you just realize, like, the, you start to realize the business side of the game because you start having conversations about his situation. And you see as a teammate, you're like, wow, this guy's a pretty good player. And, and frankly, like if a guy's in high A and he's a little bit older, say he's 26 years old and he's in high A, he's got to be a pretty good player for the organization to keep him around. But he's also probably a pretty good guy to talk to because the organization wouldn't keep him around if he wasn't a good influence on some of their younger guys. So I think you realize quickly there's a business side of it. And then I think you also realize he can help explain some of the things that go on throughout the season. You know, as a first-year player, pitching every five days or every six days, whatever rotation they might have you on, is such a huge jump. And even just going to the field every day. You know, you go for high school baseball and you play maybe three times a week. My practices consisted of us playing catch and then hitting batting practice. And then the practice is over. Versus like you're going to the field, you're throwing bullpens, you're working out, you're getting on this routine of doing it every single day, especially in the minor leagues. But I think that's the biggest jump for guys. And this was over 10 years ago now. So, you know, obviously a lot has changed as far as how pitchers are developed, what training looks like. What were at that, at that time, what were the Tigers telling you about what to, essentially what to do with your arsenal, what, you know, your ticket to the big leagues, or was that something you kind of had to figure out on your own? Like, I am this guy, I'm going to do this. Yeah. It's amazing what, what's changed since then. I wouldn't say there was a ton of like, you need to do this. You need to do that. It was competing. It was a lot of working off your fastball, which I think it, it's kind of fun looking back on it. You know, now we, then it was like we were throwing fastballs 70 plus percent of the time. Now it's like if you're throwing fastballs over 50% of the time, your fastball better be, you know, a really premium pitch. So just interesting to see how the how the game has evolved, and I'm sure it will continue to evolve over the next decade. How'd you adapt to the development over winning style of the minor leagues? I think that's a that's a good question because I it is really unique. You're on this team, but it's very individualized in the minor leagues. And I think there's some organizations that do a better job of cultivating winning in the minor leagues, which is something that I think is really, really important because you don't, you can't learn to compete unless you're really going out to win the game versus going out to just develop your own individual skill set. And I think that's one thing that as you go through the minor leagues, we talk about jumps and I think of AAA, there was a lot of older guys in AAA that knew that their career was basically going to be in AAA for the most point. Like they might get some time in the big leagues. So they really wanted to win. And I, it was, it was really refreshing. I think at that level, because you realize like guys are competing, like all of a sudden you become more of a team. And I think when you look at college baseball, you look at the college world series, for example, the emotion that comes out of that has nothing to do with development. It has everything to do with just winning the game. So I think that's a lacking piece in minor league baseball, but I think there's a lot of teams that have done a nice job of, of being able to develop players and not overusing them, but also focusing on winning because ultimately that's what you want to do. By your second full season in pro ball, you're, you start the season in double A. So you're, you're, do you feel at that point like advanced enough where if you got the call, you, you'd be ready. That's a, it's a quick jump. You're, you know, you're one of the youngest guys in the league, if not the youngest. Yeah, again, I think it goes back to being naive. I wasn't even really thinking about, like, am I ready? Am I not ready? It was like, the team told me to go here. I'm going to keep pitching. I'm not really thinking about anything else. I don't really know anything else to think about. Like, I'm 19 years old. It was fun. You know, you're just naive. You don't have any, you don't have any good experiences or bad experiences to really go off of. Did you have a preferred day in between your starts when you were in the minor leagues? Because in the minor leagues, it's you know, your chart or the gun or you know the dugout. What what was kind of your preferred? What what's the best day besides start day? The day that you're in the dugout and not doing the chart or the radar gun. You know, I mean, the minor leagues doing the chart and the radar gun, at least for me, was not a lot of fun because again, it goes back to being naive and you're not really watching the game doing the chart the way that they want you to do it. You know, you're just doing the charts so that you can turn it into the pitching coach and move on to the next day. But, you know, being in the dugout when you can hang out with your teammates and, you know, encourage them, be part of the team as opposed to sitting in the stands with one of their guys is generally better. And that uh, quote from your dad I read earlier about you skipping 
you know, pizza for, for salmon when you're in high school, how much salmon is there around the minor leagues? Like, how are you, I mean, you had, you, at least you were given the signing bonus, you had the means, but as far as the access, what was, what was keeping a healthy diet like for you, even with the finance, the financial means to do it? Yeah, definitely hard. I mean, in the low A, I can remember we were in West Michigan and our post-game spread, if we had one, was whatever the leftover food was from the concession stands that day. And, you know, obviously for me, I was in a really fortunate position financially that like I could go out and get whatever food I wanted. But for a lot of these guys, it was like, well, I'm going to eat that because I'm making 1200 bucks a month and I'm only going to make that money for five months out of the year. So I was really fortunate, but yeah, the food, uh, at least when I was there, wasn't, wasn't great. So 2011, 20 years old, walk me through that, that first big league call. Yeah, really exciting. You know, I mean, one of the, one of the most fun days of my life. You know, not thinking again, going back to just being a naive 20 year old kid and like not thinking that like I'm getting called up and then getting the call and being able to, you know, call my parents that had been through everything with me to call my brothers just meant the world to me. And I remember the little bits I do remember pitching that day, obviously a ton of fun just being in that moment. And I remember sitting at dinner after the game and telling my dad, like no matter what would have happened that day, if I would have given up 10 runs without getting an out or throwing a complete game shutout, like it was just so enjoyable to be there. You know, I think for me, I was almost so grounded as a kid that like I never thought that like, wow, I'm going to be a big league pitcher one day. So just a cool day. Was there any game planning? Is is there any game planning really for your first big league start? Like, are you really factoring in like, okay, I'm facing Bobby Abreu. Here's what I need to do. Facing Torrey Hunter. Here's what I need to do. Or it's like, man, just put down whatever. I'll, I'll throw it. I don't, I'm just trying to get through this. Yeah. I remember having a pregame meeting with, with Alex before the game Avila, and it was basically like, Hey, I'll call the game. Just like go off what I want. But if you really feel confident about something, obviously shake. But, you know, I think having a catcher that instills that confidence in you that like, I, hey, I've done the homework. you got a lot on your plate today. Go out and pitch. So, no, I wouldn't say there's a ton of game planning on your end. You're just trying to soak in the moment, stay as composed as you possibly can, and, and just go out there and compete. How many starts in the big leagues does it take to feel settled in? That's a good question. I think it depends. You know, for me, moving from team to team like I, like I did, especially early in my career, I think it can be harder to feel settled in. But I think a lot of that just goes to the group of guys that you have around you. You know, when I was with the Tigers, we had a really solid group of veteran guys. When I look back on that team, that team was kind of the dying breed of what you don't see anymore. You know, we had a lot of guys that were 30 plus years old that did a really great job in spring training of like welcoming these young guys, inviting them to things away from the field. So that way, when they did get called up, they felt like part of the team. It wasn't like, I don't know anybody here. Versus, you know, I think when you look at teams now, it's not so much it's a bad thing, but, you know, majority of guys are under 30. The majority of guys don't have a ton of service time in the big league. So just a different, a little bit different dynamic that they're walking into. What are big league logistics like when you, especially when you, you get up to the level and you, and you stay a while, obviously in 2011, you're, it's kind of a short stint, but later in your career learning, you know, that like where do you learn the things of like where to you know get people tickets where to eat on the road what do i pack for these flights stuff like that yeah i think you just learn as you go ask questions maybe make a mistake here or there but i can assure you that if you make a mistake somebody will correct you maybe not always in the best way but they'll correct you and you won't make that mistake again but you know i mean frankly you know there's a lot of people to help you between clubbies and coaches and players and front office staff there's always somebody that's willing to to lend a hand if you need if you need help with something who is the go-to vet in detroit every team has a guy the guy the guy you ask ask for for knowledge depends on really what you're asking but i would say for for that team verlander obviously had been there one of the longest tenured starting pitchers on the staff and then also rick porcello just being a high school guy that had gone through a similar situation as me. So being able to ask him questions, I didn't feel like there was going to be any stupid questions. With that, what was what was his advice to you as far? I mean, he wasn't, you know, he, I think he was a year older than you, but you guys, like you said, same thing. High, high draft picks, both tough signs, both got signed by the Tigers with a big league deal. 
you know, what, what did he impart on you, especially because again, same thing, you both got up very, very quickly. Yeah. I think just simple advice, just keep your head down, keep working hard, control what you can control. There's always going to be outside noise that comes in. That's just part of the job that you're in. So making sure that you just focus on what you can do day in and day out. What's the, the experience, like the day of being a part of a, a deadline deal like you were in 2012? Yeah. I mean, you know, the world has changed a lot even since 2012, but I found out via social media that I got traded. I remember one of my friends or my dad texting me that I'd gotten traded and probably five minutes later, got a call from the Tigers saying I was actually on the way to the field. Like, Hey, when you get here, come, come to the front office. Um, Dave Nebraska wants to talk to you. So definitely, I mean, surprising in a sense, but at that point I'd I understood enough of the business side of the game that it wasn't like this culture shock, but you know, I had all my, all my relationships were there. I felt like I grew up a lot with Detroit and knew everybody at every level. So that part is challenging when you get traded. What changes when you switch franchises is anything about the on field, how you go about things. Does, does that change at all? I feel like everything changes just because there's a comfort level that you had with somebody else that you don't have anymore especially the first time you do it you're walking into a clubhouse that maybe you know one guy who's kind of like a third connection and maybe you lean on him but there's new clubbies there's new coaches there's new styles it's a new city you're trying to navigate all this new stuff while trying to perform on the field some some of the players are happy to see you some of the players maybe aren't so happy to see you so you're, you're navigating a lot when you come into a new organization, kind of like the question I asked earlier about in the minors about what are they, you know, they telling you they want you to be, is there anything like that in a new organization? Hey, we think you're this, or is it like, Hey, come in, do it, you know, do what you've been doing. I don't know about everybody's experience. I'll speak to my experience. I would just say it was more just do what you're doing. You know, the coaches weren't the people that traded for me. So they didn't have a ton of background on my situation or hadn't watched a ton of video nor should they, but so it's more just do what you do and then we'll adapt along the way. Getting traded to Miami means you, you got to swing it. Yeah. What it, what, how, how long until after the trade did you realize like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta get a, acquire a bat. Yeah. Well, I, I always felt like I was a, I was a decent hitter in high school, whatever that means. So I never felt like too out of place hitting. So for me, it was fun to be able to hit, it, you know, allowed you to be more engaged in the game. I wish there was a way for pitchers to stay more engaged like that and not have the risk of injury and not have the disparity between leagues. I mean, when you look at the American League versus the National League, you can walk the eight-hole hitter and face the pitcher. It's pretty advantageous. Is it kind of exciting finding a place to live in Miami? I would say it's kind of daunting. I'm from St. Louis. I mean, I'm just a Midwest kid that I'd never been to Miami. I remember my first one of my first experiences was going to breakfast and the waitress came up and she started speaking Spanish. And I was like, wow, I do not like, do not speak Spanish. So definitely a culture shock, but a really cool city. And being able to be there for the couple of years I was there, getting to experience Miami for what Miami, in my opinion, really is outside of just South Beach was really cool. Did you, did you get a favorite, do you have a favorite Cuban place there? <sighs> You know, we, they used, they used to make really good Cuban sandwiches in the locker room. So I never felt like I needed to go out and find another Cuban place. Maybe that was the laziness, but I, you know, they, they make good Cuban sandwiches in the locker room. I mean, there's, there's just nothing, nothing better than a, than a Cuban sandwich. Um, shout out my grandma. I'm, I'm half Cuban. So shout out to her. She's definitely not not listening. Uh, (laughs) so the, Starting in in 2014, you have you know you have a good season with with Miami in 2013. You kind of you, you know you kind of establish yourself in the big leagues, and then um, you know 2014 kind of turns into this starts you on this roster shuffle. You're out of options because of you know you you not because of but you know you start you started your clock right away, so you're out of options. You get DFA'd by the Marlins. What do you you know where do you take stock in your career at that point? You you had big league success. So it was, and it's not that, that far away where, where were you, you know, moving forward after that DFA? Yeah. I mean, 2014 was a really hard year. I was just searching. And when I look at what they have now in terms of analytics, you know, there was a lot of things that I was doing wrong, whether it was mechanical or, 
you know, not spinning the ball the correct way that I was just searching. And it's, it's amazing. I think it's great for guys now that have the technology they have, but, you know, searching to find what I felt like the feeling was in the past. Cause I think as you play more and more, you know, you get that feeling and you're just trying to repeat that same feeling that you had a month ago or three months ago and six months ago. Ultimately, you'll never garner that same feeling, but you're trying to get that new feeling of something that just clicks and you can just continue on, you know, and have, you know, 15 good starts in a row with that same feeling. That What was that specific feeling? for? What was going on in 2013 that you were searching for? Yeah, I think, I mean, ultimately it's simple, but it's just consistency. And when you look at pitchers and mechanics and mindset and everything like that, you know, I think, Confidence is something that's a choice for players. You can either choose to come to the field confident or not. With that being said, it's much easier to be confident when you're having success on the field than it is when you're really, really struggling. So I think just getting back to feeling like I can go out there, perform, compete, be consistent with all my pitches and whatever count and whatever situation is really what you're ultimately striving for. So there's no, you know, for me, it was never so much like a, I have to get my arm in this position or I have to get my body in this position. It was just that feeling you have on the mound that, you know, everything is clicking the way you know it should be. How do you take your starters routine and then adjust to being put in the bullpen? Yeah, definitely hard. You know, I never pitched out of the bullpen. Probably wasn't as open to it as I should have been. And, you know, I think that mindset isn't a great mindset to have no matter what you're doing. You know, there's a lot of smart people around you that said like, hey, this might be a good reset for you. But definitely hard, you know, you're, it's much harder mentally to be in the bullpen, in my opinion, than to be a starter, because as a starter, you know, when you're pitching and you're going to get four mental days off as a bullpen guy, and especially in a role that I was in as more of the long guy or giving the team length, you know, you're one pitch away from the starter pulling a hamstring. to you being on the mound warming up. So you kind of always have to be semi mentally in the game in the bullpen. Was there anything specifically you did in the bullpen to try to keep yourself in the game or is it just watching and, and trying to zone in? Yeah, I wouldn't say there was anything anything too specific. I think each guy has their own routine for what they feel like will, will allow them to be ready to perform when their number's called. 2015, you essentially a lost season. You, you, know, you, you throw a handful of innings. What kind of toll does it take on you mentally being away from from game competition? Like, how how did you choose to occupy your time in your you know, your first year without baseball? Yeah, well, my wife, fortunately, we were blessed to have our first kid that year, so my daughter was born. Oh yeah, then you you had you were plenty. Yeah, occupied. my daughter was born in 2015, so that was a huge blessing. And you know, we had a great group of guys. I'd spent basically the entire year in Scottsdale with team rehab, so to speak. And we had guys on and out, but there were guys that were there the whole time. And, you know, we would do stuff on the weekends away from the field with each other to just get away from baseball because everybody in that group was going through that same mental grind of trying to get back on the field and having setbacks and coming to the field and feeling like you're doing the same thing over again and just have another setback. At that point, like kind of, I guess, and now looking in retrospect at the big league deal you received out of high school, you're out of options. It kind of, it puts you in that state of shuffle very often. Team can't, you know, can't, you know, shuffle you back to the minors to work on anything without, without losing you. In terms of your development, are there any regrets to getting put on the 40 man from the get go? Yeah, great question. One that I thought about a lot, I would say no, just because the sense of ultimately what you want as a, a player, whether it's in sports or in business or whatever it is in life, you just want the opportunity. And there's so many guys that are in the minor leagues that never get the opportunity by being put on the 40 man. You're, you're almost guaranteed that like you're going to get some sort of opportunity, right? And whether you are able to capitalize on it in quick enough amount of time is ultimately up to you. So I would say no for me, because, you know, I'm appreciative of the opportunity that I was given by the, by the Tigers, by the Marlins and there were times when I was able to capitalize it, on it. And there were times when I wish I would have done better. But, you know, ultimately it goes back to that conversation we were having earlier that you, know, you put in the work, you do everything that you can possibly do, and you can feel good about the results wherever they may be. Did you feel like you ever got back to 100% of what you were before the injury? Sure. I felt like I got back to 100%. You know, my velocity post-injury was actually higher than, pre- than pre-injury. I think the game had, had started changing in a way 
I started moving more towards analytics. Spin rate had really become a thing. Swing strike rate had become a thing. And some of those things, I just unfortunately don't have the God-given ability to spin the baseball the way some other guys do. So I wouldn't say I didn't get back, but it was just the game had changed and it was up to you to adapt to it. When you see the game changing and you see, you know, and you have each off season, you kind of can put your work in and figure out what am I going to do to make myself more successful the next year? What for you was, was that work? Did you, did you try anything new? Was, you know, were you looking at other outlets or was it, I'm just going to, you know, try to figure out what was making me successful in Miami and, and replicate that? Yeah. Yeah. So in 2018, that off season, I went to driveline and worked with Matt Daniels, who's now with the Giants. Um, Matt helped me a lot with just, you know, my mission coming there was, hey, I need to strike out more guys. So what do I need to do to strike out more guys? So we kind of went through the full assessment. It was the beginning of the offseason. I had enough velocity, but my fastball wasn't really a plus pitch at the time, just based on vertical break and spin rate, things of that nature. I wasn't getting a ton of swings and misses on it. So what other pitch could I either get better with or develop to generate more swings and misses, right? And really what we came up with was, you know, getting a little bit more horizontal break on my breaking ball. And then we added a splitter to the mix. That next year I went to Korea and implemented those things to some, some varying degrees of success. But, you know, when you're implementing a new pitch mid-season, so to speak, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. So there's definitely things that you try. It's just – the off season becomes shorter and shorter every year. And ultimately it's about you performing on the field. Towards the end of your affiliated ball stint, um, you're with the, you're with the, the white Sox, you're with the, the nationals. When you're in AAA, you're in the rotation, you're getting the ball every five days. When you're in the big leagues, mostly you're in the, you're in the bullpen is life better as a big league bullpen piece or a AAA starter. Oh, that's, I mean, that's a loaded question because obviously everybody wants to be in the big leagues. So I'll say it's, it's better in the big leagues, but you know, I think I was at a point in my career where I appreciated every place that I was at. So what I mean by that is I'd gotten past the point of saying, like, if I'm not in the big leagues, I'm not going to be happy. And I think that can be a hard thing as a baseball player. Like, we strive so much to get to the next level, to see, like, the carrot at the end of the rainbow. But for me, I just appreciated the opportunities I had. I, I was able to appreciate better the relationships I had in the locker room with guys, whether it was in AAA or the big leagues. Now, obviously there's things in the big leagues that are, you know, not reality that are amazing. You know, you have people at your disposal, you have financial resources, you're flying on a private plane, you know, there's things that are great, but you know, ultimately just being where your feet are at being present, I think is so important for guys. At that point, you're, you know, you're 26, 27, but you've been in the big leagues for, you know, you've, you've, you've been in the big leagues for a long time. You're older in big league years than you're, you know, you're 26, 27. When you're in AAA, when you're in the big leagues at that time and you see kids in the same position you were in or, you know, guys coming up who are on the way up they're they're up for the first time or they're in AAA, they're knocking on the door. When they came to you, like you came to Rick Porcello or a Verlander or something like that, what, what, what were you able to, to implement on those kids? I think the biggest thing for me is just trying to keep guys hungry you know, I think it is so easy as a, let's say a top prospect, you're in AAA, you're one step away from the big leagues and you think that like, I'll just continue to do what I'm doing. I will be a big leaguer for the next 10 years. And, but really having that perspective that like, there's always somebody that they're drafting that is going to try to take your job. There's always somebody that's coming up through AA that's pitching really well. That's going to warn a spot on the team. So just making sure that you're always keeping your foot on the gas and continuing to get better. When did the opportunity to go to Korea first come up? I had the opportunity a little bit earlier, probably than when I ended up taking it, but I think it became realistic after going to driveline, really wanting the opportunity to pitch every fifth day and just say like, Hey, I want to try something new in my repertoire. And if it works, it's going to lead to more opportunities. than if I go to AAA again and do exactly what I'm doing that year. So for me, it was just the right time for me to, to explore doing it. What was the conversation like with your wife? <laughs> well, she's not here to say what the conversation was like, but <laughs> the conversation was, was, Hey, I think this is a really good opportunity and we should explore it. You know, with the teams over there, they have a lot of people that they can go out. There's a lot of guys in AAA that want to go over there, especially now. 
So when they offer you something, it's kind of like, hey, we need to know relatively quickly if this is something that you want to pursue. How long of an acclimation period did you have to the, the country itself before the season gets going? I went over there for a, basically a day and a half, 36 hours to do a physical, but I was in Seoul, which our team was not in Seoul. So not, not long, you know, you go over there, relatively nerve wracking, you know, you in a new country, you don't speak the language. I knew the two other guys that were American guys that were going over to play, but didn't, I didn't know them personally. We had just kind of texted and, and talked on the phone a little bit. What is the, what's the day to day like, uh, out, outside of baseball? Is there, is there time to explore or you, you know, are you mostly kind of just hanging out in your apartment? Yeah, no, there's plenty of time to explore. And I think I took took probably more advantage of exploring over there than I did here just because, you know, it's not like the, it's not like you have a lot else to do. There's not, you know, you have Netflix or whatever else, but I'm not a huge TV guy. So, you know, it's an opportunity for me, you know, as an older, as a guy who's a little bit more mature, like, hey, this is a really cool thing to be on the other side of the world. That, like I can explore this and like check out these cool restaurants and cities that like I might never see again. So definitely a really cool experience. What's the, you know, kind of shoe being on the other foot of, you know, Korean guys, guys from Japan, they'll, you know, they'll come over play in America. Not a lot of, you know, some, some speak English, some don't. What's it like being on, you know, the other side of that being one of the few guys in the locker room who, you know, who doesn't speak Korean. I have such a different level of respect for even the Dominican guys, the Venezuelan guys that come over, at 16, 18 years old, and they're in a different country. They don't speak the language. And it's also that culture shift of what you think is normal, what we consider common sense, isn't common sense over there because it's not how their culture goes about it. So you're trying to understand all that, plus speak the language, plus perform on the field. And, you know, I just have, I have so much respect for the guys that come over here, whether it's from Japan, Korea, but even Venezuela and the Dominican, you know, the guys that even have been here for years, it's still not their home country. It's not what they're used to, and they're out there performing every day. On that same subject, I always think about movies like Mr. Baseball, where you know there's always like some some face Paul moment where he does something he you know not supposed to or goes against taboo or whatever. Did did you have any like? a cultural misstep or just something that, you know, something on the field that they don't do that we don't do here that they do there that you were just like, Oh, I feel, feel like an idiot. I wouldn't say there was anything where I was like, wow, that I definitely feel like an idiot, but you know, just day to day things. We had some good people helping us, but you're just trying to, you're just trying to blend in from a cultural standpoint. And at least what I was trying to do, you know, I'm, you don't want to be disrespectful. My parents always taught me to be respectful and, you're trying to be respectful of their culture and show it the importance that it deserves. So just those day-to-day things, the, the normal interactions that maybe you and I have that we think are just casual because we know about what to do are over there. You're like thinking in your head, hey, is this how I'm supposed to talk? Is this where I'm supposed to put my hands? Am I supposed to take my hat off? Things of that nature. I asked the same thing to Dan Straley when uh, when we had him on the pod. But what do we need to bring from what what do we in America need to bring over from Korean baseball? What are to U.S. baseball? What are things that they do over there that we need to incorporate? That you think that this game should incorporate as well? Oh, that's easy. They need to incorporate chants. So the fans chant. You know, like when you're on the road, the fans are chanting the entire time. Everybody has like a walk up chant song, and like they just continue to chant the whole game. I remember being. We were losing maybe 10 to nothing one game in the ninth inning and we're up to bat. So our, our half of the stadium is chanting. And I'm like, I told the other guy, I told Joe Whelan, I'm like, this is amazing. Like we're losing 10 to nothing. All these people are still here chanting. You know, like you go to a Dodgers game and like in the second inning, nobody's there. In the sixth inning, the stadium is full. And in the eighth inning, nobody's there. Again. And, you know, versus yeah, there. Everyone's just, trying to beat traffic. Everyone's trying to beat traffic. Well, there's a lot of traffic in Korea too, but people stay. So yeah, that is awesome. We got, I guess during uh, during the COVID, when when MLB wasn't playing, but ESPN, you know, brokered that deal with uh, with the the KBO. We got that insight to what the fans are like there, and it seemed like seemed like every game, you know, we you know they didn't have uh, they didn't have all the fans, but it seems like every every highlight you see from the KBO looks. You know, it looks like everyone's having a ball. Yeah, no, for sure. 
what was um you know following that season what what in your mind was you know what made you decide to retire basically what was the final was there was it a single day thing where you're like you know what i'm done or was it just this gradual you know i i i'm gonna try but yeah probably not for me i kind of knew right when that season was over that my heart probably wasn't in the day-to-day grind of the mundane things that you have to do in order to have a chance to compete on the field. And I always felt like if I'm not willing to do the day-to-day things and do them the way at the level that I was doing them before that I'm doing myself a disservice by being out there. I'm doing other players as a service that could have that spot. And for me, I never really identified as a baseball player. Like I love baseball, but baseball is a job for me. And you know, there's a lot of other passions that I have in life outside of baseball. So I think it was a natural transition throughout that off season that like, Hey, I think I'm ready to explore something else. And we talked before we started recording that you started your school before you were done with, with baseball, started, started, uh, college. How feasible is it for a, you know, a, a player at, at any level to, to do college as at, while being a professional baseball player with everything that goes into that? Yeah, I would definitely say it's feasible. I think guys, you know, have to have time that's committed out of the day that like they're focused on that and not overcommit themselves. But, you know, frankly, as a professional baseball player, there's a ton of downtime. There's a ton of time, you know, when you're not at the field that you can do things like that. There's downtime in the off season. There's, there's time to do it. It just takes you being willing to, you know, probably humble yourself in a bit and go back and do school and do things that you don't want to do that you might think, Hey, I'm not really learning anything by doing this in the moment that, you know, ultimately can benefit you in the long run. What from your career in baseball can you directly attribute to you having success in your current career? Persistence. You know, I think you learn baseball, you learn to lose and you learn that like, it's okay. The sun's going to come up tomorrow. And you just continue on and you're going to, what I learned in baseball is that if you continue to do the right activities over and over and over again, whether the results are showing up or not in the long run, the results are going to be there, but it's so easy for us to get bogged down in the mundane, the hour the day, the week, the month that like the results aren't right where we want them to be. But if we continue to do the things when nobody's watching that we know are the right things to be doing, or ultimately we're going to have success, but that just takes that, that persistence mindset. If you could give a pep talk to 18 year old Jacob Turner, right after you sign your, your, you know, your draft contract, what, what does that talk look like? Just enjoy every moment, enjoy the good, enjoy the bad, understand that there's going to be good and bad, but just enjoy it because it doesn't last forever. And it, you know, for me, I think I spent probably a little bit too much time at the beginning trying to be only focused on the good part and not understanding that there was things that I could learn from failures that were along the way, but just enjoy it. You know, there's life is meant to be enjoyed and it's not always going to be the way that we think it's going to go, but you know, there's so many great things that we can take in those negative situations. And if we have the right mindset and the gratitude towards those situations, there's so many positive things that can come out of it. I have a quick rapid fire for you. Then I'll let you get out of here. All right. Favorite big league ballpark? Wrigley Field. I guess I guess my I, I didn't include this, but what is it like putting on a Cubs uniform in, in Wrigley Field? No offense to the the great city Miami and the Marlins, but the Cubs have a little more history behind that. Well, for me, being from St. Louis, super weird because when I got traded to my uh, from Miami to Chicago, everybody was like, "I can't believe you're going to be a, a Cub." Like, if you're in St. Louis, like you were just diehard St. Louis, like everything about Chicago stinks. Well, it turns out Chicago is a really cool city. The Cubs are a great organization. Wrigley Field is an awesome place to play. So a very, very cool experience. What is it like just putting fanhood aside when you become a professional? Like if you grew up a Cardinals fan? It happens fast and you don't even realize it happens. But I remember two years in, somebody asking me to go to a World Series game and I was like, yeah, I'm good. Like I would love to watch on TV. I'll watch the starting pitching, but I, I have no... Like somebody else will enjoy being in that moment much more than I will enjoy being in the moment in stands. So interesting, interesting. I still have fandom. I love the NFL. I love fantasy football, but you know, I love golf. I love Tiger Woods. But outside of that, uh, best hitter you ever faced? 
Mike Trout. Common answer. Uh, best pitcher you ever faced? I guess Strasburg. You know, I mean, I remember facing him and like having no chance just because of, you know, he's a big guy, has great stuff, has kind of that aura around him. I was going to say, as a pitcher, you're nothing's expected of you. Do you go up there and legitimately like try? Or you're just like, I just don't want to get hit. Oh, no, I definitely go up there and legitimately try. Like, you, there's just that competitive side in you where like you get up there and it's like, and ultimately, I like, guess, a starting pitcher, you have two, maybe three at bats that like can determine the outcome of the game. So, yeah, I mean, you definitely try. Best food you ate in Korea? Best food I ate in Korea. Korean barbecue. I mean, I love Korean barbecue. We had some good sushi places over there, but Korean barbecue is obviously, uh, you know, more of a Korean thing and definitely really enjoyed. I really enjoyed all the food over there. Best food city while you were in the big leagues? I like Chicago. They have everything. Uh, Common answer as well. Last one question I ask everyone. Do you have a nightmare bus ride story from the minor leagues? (laughs) I do. I'll share, I'll share what I can share on the podcast, but we, (laughs) Drove like 12 hours and we were in West Michigan. So all the coaches get their seats. The majority of the players, like I was one of the younger guys, like I was doubling up with another guy. So like as a six, five guy, you're sitting on this bus, just like sitting here, just being like, when is this going to end? And I mean, a 12 hour ride is, is no joke. Like you were on that thing for a long time. You get off. It's the middle of the night. You're playing the next day. You're just thinking, you know, my, it was my first year. I'm like, this is insane. So nothing crazy that, that, uh, I'll share on the podcast, but definitely some, some interesting travel journeys is how I'll describe it. You hit, you hit double digit hours on a bus and no matter how tall you are, your, your back is going to be going to be in bad, bad, yeah. bad spot. You're just hoping you're not the one pitching the next day because nobody wants to yeah. play. It's not so much you pitching. Yeah. It's like the, the eight guys on the field with you also don't want to be there. That left fielder is checked out. Yeah. <laughs> Jacob Turner, that's all I got for you. Thanks so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. Thanks, Kyle.